Alright, Aqua Lads and Aqua Lasses, welcome to Top Man here in the Aqua Cave, the show that is based and centered around list based entertainment. My name is Johnny C, and as always, thanks for joining us here in the Aqua Cave. So, we've got a little bit of a flip of the switch here, everybody. So, on Top Man, you know, we usually do countdowns and things like that. Uh, you know, we've done the top 10, uh, or whatever it was, top 15 cinematic disappointments. We've done all kinds of fun stuff. So, I'm going to warn you straight out of the gate today, we are going to switch things up a little bit. It is still going to be a list-centric episode, okay? But we're not going to be ranking items. I have often talked about, I don't know about often, but uh, you may have heard me mention, pray tell, the 1989 blockbuster year in cinema. I mean, what a year this was. It's kind of crazy, because if you do this little experiment I've done with a lot of years in your lifetime, you're probably going to have similar results. The summer of 1989 was absolutely fucking loaded with blockbusters, and I've always threatened to do an episode talking about that. Then I started looking at 1989 in cinema in general, and holy shit, there are so many films in 1989 that were released that are so relevant, not only to like the greater culture, but I think that it might be relevant to you as well. There's got to be some gems in here that uh, mean something to you that maybe don't mean something to anyone else. And that's one of the things I love about film is that, uh, you know, uh, popping out a random movie, like one of the jumps to my mind, it didn't come out in 1989, is a 1987 movie called Can't Buy Me Love. No one on the fucking history of the earth has any reason to watch Can't Buy Me Love, Okay. But it just so happened when I was a kid, we had Showtime in the house, and Showtime played it all the fucking time. So I watched it all the fucking time, and I watched it incessantly. Then I became a teenager and understood even more about the film and found it hilarious, etc., etc. I mean, you see how this goes? Everybody has these movies, you know? Every one of us was the kid who rented Tommy Boy every fucking weekend, or, you know... Is Billy Madison or something like that. Now, those films are a little bit more on the nose in terms of their, their more well-known in the pop culture zeitgeist. But but the, what all this is even relevant to is that today we're going to do a list. The list is chronological, 1989 in cinema. Just a stroll down memory lane to see if we can trigger any fun memories or anything like that. And just sort of a casual conversation about this, you know, 1989, all the fun movies that came out. Now, it's a massive list, and not all of these movies really mean anything to me. Some of them do, and uh, ones that do, I'll talk about in greater length. Other ones are probably just going to get a brief mention. All right? So if that sounds good, let's dive into this bad boy. Ironically enough, January, I got nothing. Now, sure, there were movies released in January, but in terms of making this chronological list, there wasn't anything I really wanted to talk about. I find that not so much surprising, though. January has always been a dead zone in terms of releasing film. Now, that has changed in the modern era, with Martin Luther King's three-day weekend uh, often being a hot time to release a film. Uh, More of a blockbuster statue. I don't want to call it a blockbuster per se, but like a, probably a film that maybe was that specifically targeted for a three-day weekend. Now you would, could say to me, well, Johnny C, isn't every movie targeted for a three-day weekend? Isn't that what everybody wants? And while I would say, sure, everybody would love to have that. 
people or studios usually choose that weekend for a specific reason for specific films. Um, you know, we just in our real world had Black Adam come out on a random October weekend that had nothing going on. Um, that too is a choice because there's nothing going on. But at the same time, eh, eh, maybe you hold off something like that for uh, a three-day weekend. It just seems to make a little bit more sense, but whatever, enough about January. Our first topic, February, the weekend of February 17th. Good God almighty fans, what a fucking weekend. Now, I didn't see either one of these films theatrically, but I watched them a whole hell of a lot on home video and what have you. The first film, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That doing anything for you, fans? Now, first of all, think about it. February 17th, 1989. That's how old Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is. But an independent film, a smaller film. Uh, Orion Pictures picked it up for distribution. Orion, of course, now out of business completely. Keanu Reeves. I mean, sure, he was in a little bit, and he was in little stuff after. But this is the movie that probably introduced you to Keanu Reeves. I know it did me. It introduced me to George Carlin. I didn't know... I mean, George Carlin, forever to me, has always been Rufus! Because it was my first exposure. Sure, I've heard stand-up. I understand George Carlin, don't get me wrong, but he's always Rufus! Um, who, did, who didn't learn about history from this movie? I mean... Do most of us know who Socrates is because he's so great? Joan of Arc? Well, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Billy the Kid? Ah, maybe Young Guns. But I don't know. Sigmund Freud the Fruit Dude! I mean, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. A couple of stoner losers. We'd never say they're stoners, but it's pretty clear. This is a PG movie, after all. Um, they, they fucking travel in a phone booth through time. You know, when, when Doctor Who became bigger in America in the in the aughts I was like if they're just doing Bill and Ted but no Bill and Ted's just doing Doctor Who all kinds of influences around here the Wild Stallions band that's what this is all about Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter playing Bill and Ted uh, they form a band that will change the future for the better God if only of course, the film spawned a couple of sequels. Not really here to talk about that, but Bogus Journey. Uh, you might be a king or a little street sweeper, but sooner or later, you dance with the Reaper. Get down! You know, I mean, come on. I will say this. The future scene in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, when they go to the future, and the future dudes are like, It's you! Yeah! It's us! Who are we? They play this badass fucking song called In Time by Robbie Robb. It's one of my favorite songs of all time, and I only know it from this movie. In Time! That's a butcherization. I know it ended up being in Mr. Robot 2. That's oh, not Mr. Robot 2, but Mr. Robot also, that song. Um, I know that because whenever I looked it up on YouTube to listen to it, it'd be like, Mr. Robot song. And I'm like, fuck you, YouTube. It's not a Mr. Robot song. It's a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure song. But check this out. And I, and I could go all day about Bill and Ted. I'm not trying to shortchange it, but it's a long fucking list. Next, same day, February 17th, 1989, Tom Hanks welcomes you to The Burbs. Yo, Rumsfield! Yo, officer, these people in my parents' house, they're eating all my food! The Burbs was a Johnny C. household staple. Okay? my My dad, God love him, like on a day like Thanksgiving, you know, where we got a lot of garbage, 
he still says, will somebody go out and clopec the garbage? Meaning beat the shit out of the garbage with a stick so you can fit more stuff into the container. That, the, the burbs, you know, you talk about films of cultural relevance, Star Wars, uh, The Exorcist, uh, Titanic, like, yes, of course. But Joe Dante's The Burbs is culturally relevant to my household. It's it's insane how these things permeate our individualized or small group culture. And I mean that. I'm not trying to sound like a, a stoner through a haze of bong smoke. All right, This isn't college, okay? It's fascinating to me how a small little piece of art like The Burbs can, you know, influence a subset of individuals for a lifetime. A fucking lifetime. But the Burbs, of course, is Tom Hanks is just trying to spend a week off from home on vacation. He is married to Princess Leia. Speaking of Star Wars, the late great Carrie Fisher. Uh, character actor Rick Dockman is Art the Fat Neighbor, who's always trying to, you know, convince uh, Tom Hanks that the new neighbors that moved in are fucking homicidal killers. I won't spoil anything. Bruce Dern is the retired military guy across the street. Rumsfeld. Corey Feldman. Woo! God, I fucking love Corey Feldman in this movie. He's the stoner kid across the street whose parents are out of town all week. He's supposed to paint his house, but he's just fucking around with shit in the neighborhood. I can't give this movie enough props. Joe Dante, of course, directed Gremlins and Gremlins 2. Lots of other stuff that's good. I just love this movie. It's a big part of growing up. And, uh, you know, I'd watch it right now. You put it on, I'm sitting down, I'm watching the whole fucking thing. Uh... A great Tom Hanks comedic performance. I know Tom Hanks is like America's favorite actor or whatever. Um, Don't forget, he did some great comedies before he was Forrest Gump and in Philadelphia. All right? Next, we're going all all the way to March 24th. And you know what? You might think that your life is small, but it's not. Because... You can make it big, dun, 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 dun. so big, dun, 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 dun. so big. Speaking of Showtime movies, ladies and gentlemen, Shelley Hall, Shelley Long from Cheers is the leader of Troop Beverly Hills. She's a wealthy socialite in Beverly Hills who's contemplating divorcing the coach, Craig T. Nelson, in an awesome, thankless performance. Hey, this is Coach! Come on down to Nifflers Mufflers! I fucking love Craig T. Nelson. Um, but she decides to be the leader of her daughter's Girl Scout troop, basically. The gag here is that the girls are all from Beverly Hills! So they're all, you know uppity, you know, like uh, sheltered girls who whose idea of camping is, you know, being in a hotel that doesn't have cable, all right? Now, that's also my idea of camping, which is probably why this film resonates with me. It's stupid. It's a it's a 90-minute PG flick from 1989. There's not a whole lot going on, but I love this fucking movie. Fucking, all you girls just gather around. We're wilderness girls and it's cooked. Time. They, they sell the Girl Scout cookies with the concert. I mean, dude, come on. This movie's stupid. But the ironically enough, the girls that play the Wilderness Girls, it's kind of a who's who. It's not, but it kind of is. There's a couple of ones in here who are just characters. Like one girl is the uh, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Dictator. Like they're just the dictator of some country we don't know. It's fucking hilarious. Uh, the girl whose parents are always out of town played by Carla Eugenio. Uh, from Son-in-Law, she played Beck. 
Rebecca. But she's also in like Sin City, uh, Watchmen. She's Silk Spectre 1. I mean, she's the voice of all the Kryptonian computers and all the DC movies. I mean, she's in so much more. I'm not trying to pigeonhole this woman. But that's the things that jump into mind. Uh, one of the girls is from Punky Brewster. The girl whose dad is a film director is played by uh, Nikki from Miss Bliss, Saved by the Bell, the preschool years, or Saved by the Bell, the junior high years. Um, the girl who is whose dad is broke is went on to be on ER. And then, I don't want to be forgetting anyone, but I'm saving the best for last. So, Shelley Long's daughter is played by Jenny Lewis, who would later go on to be in uh, The Wizard as the girl in The Wizard. But she was also the lead singer of Real Kylie, the band. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. I know a couple of their songs. But she also went on to have a, a really interesting solo career. I love her Jenny Lewis uh, uh, featuring the, um, oh, the twins. I can't remember the name of the album. But it's, uh, it's you know, it's a pretty good folksy, like, I don't know. It's good fucking music. But that's True Beverly Hills in a nutshell. There's mo- much more to cover. But it's a long fucking list. April 7th. A triple header unlike any other. Three films that couldn't be less similar. First up, Canon Films Amazing Epic starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, Cyborg. I mean, you could write a book on Cyborg, which is probably why so many books have been written about the Canon Films filmography. Cyborg, famously... Uh, could it have been a sequel to Masters of the Universe or Spider-Man, a movie? But they, they, you know, Canon was known for reusing all their sets and stuff like that. So that's part of the the legend here. There's a director's cut of Cyborg that's been floating around like the last ten years called Slinger that I've tried to watch, but it's hard to find a decent copy. This movie kind of sucks. Uh, everybody's named after a guitar. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It's about a post-apocalyptic society. I won't go deep into this one, except I kind of like it. It's awful, but I kind of love it. Um, when Fender, the bad guy, gives a speech at the beginning of the film, he's like, I like the death. I like the misery. I like this world! I think that's been sampled in a couple of rap songs that I've heard, but he also sounds just like Macho Man Randy Savage. Up next for the same weekend... The Dream Team, starring Michael Keaton, Christopher Lloyd, and uh, Peter Boyle from Young Frankenstein, amongst other things. Look, this is another Showtime movie, or HBO movie maybe. It's about four guys in a mental hospital who go to a Mets game or a Yankees game, and the, the guy who's in charge of them gets mistaken for like a mob guy and they, he gets shot and put in the hospital, so they're roaming the streets of New York City. I haven't seen it in a really long time. Uh, all I really remember, well, I know Michael Keaton is a great as an unhinged guy. Christopher Lloyd thinks he's a doctor. It's kind of tragic, though, actually. And uh, one of the guys <laughs> only speaks in baseball terms. So, <laughs> like something big's happening, and he's like, big inning, big inning, which is something that I still kind of say every once in a while. I, maybe the movie doesn't age well. I don't know. I haven't seen this movie in fucking 20 years, but... It still jumped out at me. Finishing off the weekend, a film that everyone knows, that everyone loves. I've talked about it numerous times. Major League. This guy's dead. Cross him off then. Tire World. Hey, Lou, how'd you like to manage the Guardians? Oh, I don't know. 
Tell you what, Charlie, I got a guy on the other line about some white walls. I'll talk to you later. Oh, is that you, Tolbert? Oh, I'm hungover. If you were going to pull this shit, you could have at least said you were from the Yankees. You trying to say Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball? Ah, oh, Christ, Harris, don't start a holy war. Hats. Hats for bets. <laughs> Dynamite drop in there, Monty. Those broadcasting schools really paid off. I just... I mean, what can be said about Major League? And yes, I changed it to the Guardians when I did the quote. Fuck you. I mean, no, not fuck you, the Guardians. I'm just saying, like, yeah, I did it. And I don't care if you care. Um... I mean, what a fucking classic, okay? I grew up watching this movie with my friends. Uh, my, we used to joke that my best friend's dad kind of reminded us of Lou Brown, the manager of the beleaguered Cleveland Guardians. I just, I love this movie. I don't want to shortchange it. I just, what else can I say about it that hasn't been fucking said? It's a dynamite of a movie. And, I, I mean, it's a classic. Spawns, it spawned two sequels I know I've talked about. I actually like Major League 2. Sue me. Uh, update. Top man update, ladies and gentlemen. If you listen to my top cinematic disappointments, I spoke about how I walked out of Major League back to the minors and have never seen it since. After I did that show, I went back and I watched Major League back to the minors and I turned it off about an hour into it. The movie sucks. There are no jokes. It's awful. Go to hell for even making it. But yeah, that's, so that, that wraps up the weekend of April 7th. But man, so much more to go. We haven't even scratched the surface. In terms of our next entry, though, I, I don't even know where to start. It's April 14th, only film that weekend that we're talking about. She's Out of Control, starring Tony Danza and Catherine Hicks. Oh my God. Now look, fans. I'm not here to say that Tony Danza is some sort of comedic genius. Because he's not. I'm not even a, a much of a fan of Who's the Boss, to be honest with you. That's one of those sitcoms I just kind of missed. I'd stick around for the opening title because I like the song, and then I'd bail. But here's the thing. Tony Danza plays a widowed uh, gentleman with two daughters. One of whom is like 15 or 16. And please, please keep in context anything I say about Tony Danza's teenage daughter in this film I'm coming at you from the perspective of me when I was a kid. Please understand this, okay? All right, so, anyway, she's kind of a nerd ringer, like sort of an ugly duckling, if you will, even though she's really not. Uh, you know, they put some fake braces on her, they put her in glasses, they put her hair in a ponytail. According to not another teen movie, the only thing she's missing is paint on her overalls. Oh, come on, she's got paint on her overalls. I like kind of love not another teen movie. Anyway, he goes away on a business trip, and his girlfriend, that being Tony Danza's girlfriend, played by Star Trek IV's Catherine Hicks. Yeah! I like Catherine Hicks a lot. She's a charm, you know? Uh, she was on Seven Heaven. Another fucking WB drama I totally missed out on. But here's the thing. Uh, when, when Tony Danza's away on this business trip, she gets a movie makeover. Next thing you know, the phone's constantly ringing. Boys are constantly at the door. She gets a slow-motion walk down the steps to Venus, if you will. Please find a little girl for me to thrill. Oh. Like, I don't know if this movie invented the slow-motion walk down the steps, but it's certainly the first time I ever saw it. And it's pl she's played by Amy Dolenz, who, at the time, and I don't know about now, and I'm not throwing shade, and I don't really care. Just go with it, okay? You want to talk about letting Johnny C know what's up. I figured it out. 
Mom, I think I like girls, okay? Because, wow, okay? But there's all sorts of shenanigans that come with having a teenage daughter who's quote-unquote in demand. Her grades go from A's to B's. She's always out and about. The phone's constantly ringing. What can Tony Danza do? He could turn to a psychiatrist played by inconceivable Wallace Shawn. Look, this movie's not going to change the world. I fucking love this movie and would put money down to watch it at any moment. That being said, uh, I talked in my, uh, I think it's my Cinematic Disappointments episode about old movies that are overpriced on streaming services. I think I saw, when I googled this movie real quick, uh, to get the name of Amy Dolans, who plays the daughter, that it said it was free on YouTube. I can't vouch for that, but if it is, get your ass to Moz or get your ass to YouTube and watch this movie. Uh, blink and you'll miss it. Screech. Dustin Diamond is in this flick. It's not important, but I don't know. I, I love this movie. Oh, oh, you want to say Blink and you'll miss it. Screech is in it. Young Matthew Perry is in this as the douchebag that one of the douchebags that his daughter dates. It's tremendous. He's he's absolutely Matthew Perry in it up the entire time. And there's a fantastic gag where Tony Danza steals a car and he turns on the car and La Bamba starts playing and the car has hydraulics and look La Bamba's not funny hydraulics aren't funny but when you mix it with Tony Danza trying to sneakily steal a car and it's like la 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 bamba and he's like gyrating out of control it's not funny but it's the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen at the same time I love it I love she's out of control 17 thumbs up fuck it I love this movie. Next up, the weekend of April 21st. First up, Kickboxer. Another fucking Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Oh, man, I hope you're a big fan of JCVD because here he is. We've had Cyborg earlier in the month and the Kickboxer later. I mean, Jesus Christ, can you imagine that in the modern era? Can you imagine two like Dwayne Johnson movies coming out in like two weeks? It's it's not going to happen. It's crazy. I'm not a massive Kickboxer fan. I prefer Kickboxer 2 featuring uh, Cody from Step by Step as the titular Kickboxer. I don't really, but it's just the only thing about Kickboxer that lives on. Well, there's two things. One, at the end, when he has to fight Tong Po, the evil Kickboxer that broke his brother, um, they do the scene where they wrap their glove, their hands in like tape, and then they dip it in glue, and then they, they put glass on it, and then they fight in a martial arts battle, okay? Famously parodied in Hot Shots Part Yeah. Sprinkles, sprinkles, gummy bears, gummy bears, sprinkles, sprinkles, gummy bears, gummy bears. You know, when Charlie Sheen wants that's to figure out what to dip his gloves in for the big fight. Um, but also the scene which you can just YouTube of Jean-Claude Van Damme getting drunk in the bar and then fighting guys as he's drunk dance fighting. It's tremendous. Up next, same weekend, a bit more serious. Okay, well, maybe the field in Iowa didn't say bring me Darth Vader, but Darth Vader, James Earl Jones is here, of course, with Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams. Ted Mosby's favorite movie. Well, second favorite movie, because we all know A New Hope is his favorite movie. Here's the thing. I like Field of Dreams. I think it's good. I think it's interesting. I think it's a cultural touchstone. I get it. 
Um, I, I have nothing bad to say about it. Here's the sad part about Johnny C, okay? I just ranted and raved about she's out of control. And here I am saying, yeah, Field of Dreams is good. And you know what, guys? I don't have a lot. Like, it's fine. It Field of Dreams I watched when I was a kid, yes. And I was like, okay, that's fine, whatever. And then as like a teen, I maybe watched it again, and I was like, oh, I get it. But here's the thing. In my life, I'm not running back to Field of Dreams. If you are running back to Field of Dreams, I totally get it. All right, the film's good. It's it's interesting. You know, there's a mystery. I mean, if you build it, he will come. A kind of a cultural touchstone as well. Uh, is this heaven? No. It, it, it's Iowa. You know, I like it. I, I like I like the Ray Kinsella character. I find it interesting, you know. He's sort of dealing with the fact that he, he he's too old to be a hippie anymore. And, you know, it, like, it is a great, interesting story. Actually, now that I'm almost 40, I should probably revisit it instead of talking about she's out of control. But I, I, if Field of Dreams does it for you, I get it. I don't have a lot of shtick for it, but I get it. All right? How do you top Field of Dreams? Well, the same weekend, I can top that with Teen Witch. Okay? Teen Witch, the spiritual successor to Teen Wolf, because it's not a direct sequel, but it's pretty much the same concept. Uh, Robin Lively, Blake Lively's older sister, who recently was seen in the latest season of Cobra Kai, you might know her as Jessica from The Karate Kid Part 3. She's a nerd ringer. And the chick, uh, no, I shouldn't say the chick, the lady from Poltergeist lets her know She's a witch, child. Oh, my goodness, child. Robin Lively, come here. I love your red hair. Hey, I should probably tell you, you're a witch. So, Robin Lively is a teen witch. She uses her witch powers to become the popular girl in high school. She lets her friend rap that song, Top That, Top That. I don't even really know Top That. Like, this is a movie that meant nothing to me until, like, five years ago when a podcast I listened to, the We Hate Movies podcast, shout out to them, not, not like they need it, they got plenty of listeners, but they reviewed it, and I was like, wow, this movie sounds brilliant, and I watched it, and it is great. It's kind of a cheat because I'm, I came to it as an adult. I was not growing up watching this movie, and I feel sad, but I love that she's a teen witch, much like how Michael J. Fox is a teen wolf, and nobody really cares. The... Missed opportunity, having her be like the star of the volleyball or the field hockey or the soccer team or something like that. Or the ba- Even basketball. We can't do basketball because Teen Wolf did basketball. But missed opportunity. But I do love this movie. It's great. But, you know, it didn't mean anything until I was a dog. So I feel cheap kind of talking about it in great detail. Like I did with, like, She's All or she's all That. I almost said, how dare I? How dare I mistake She's Out of Control for She's All That? Even though they both start with She and they both feature slow motion walks down the stairs. Hmm. It's like there's a lawsuit pending there. Christ almighty. But yeah, Teen Witch is great. Definitely check it out. It's always on a streaming service. I recommend you watch it, but just be aware of what you're getting into. Now we're going all the way to May. So close to the summer. As a matter of fact, there's only one movie standing between us and the summer of 1989 because it starts on Memorial Day weekend, but we're not there yet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Confession Time, the first of a few Confession Times. I have never seen this film. I know I need to. I'm kind of embarrassed that I haven't, but I will admit it. Roadhouse. You may punch me in the face and say Roadhouse the next time you see me. Yes, of course, the famous Family Guy gag. I don't know why I've never seen Roadhouse. 
ironically enough, in the Johnny C household growing up, it was on a tape with Dirty Dancing. My dad, awesome, awesome boss move by my dad. He, he uh, when we got our uh, dot matrix printers, he made labels for all the tapes, like nice, beautiful labels. And there was one tape with a label that said Dirty Dancing Roadhouse. I guess it was the Patrick Swayze double feature, you could say. I just never watched it. What did I care? I was a kidster. And then, you know, in high school, nobody brought it up. And then in college, nobody brought it up. So what do we get? What am I supposed to do? I haven't seen Roadhouse yet. I need to. I will. I promise. Speaking of promises, it's time to finally fulfill the promise. We're now in the summer of 1989. Memorial Day weekend. This one is this 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 summer roster is deep. I need I need a cup so I can take a drink. Let me pick a cup. Mm. All right, there I got some water. Hey, you know what? I don't feel like I'm gonna melt after drinking out of this cup. I must have chosen wisely because it's Memorial Day weekend. It's the second best Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I mean, what could one say about a film this fantastic that hasn't already been said? Well, I'll try. Um, River Phoenix is badass as young Indy? Who would have thunk it? I remember when he died, I was like, who's River Phoenix? And my mom's like, he played Indiana Jones. I was like, you're high, Mom. Harrison Ford played Indiana Jones. She's like, no, you idiot. When he was a kidster. I was like, oh, okay. Um, Sean Connery. I should have sent it. I should have mailed it to the Mox Brothers. I mean, it's great. It's the second best indie film, in my opinion. My Well, mini episode of Top Man right here. It goes Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at number one. I'm kidding. It goes Temple of Doom at number one, then Crusade, then Of the Ark, then Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I know. It's blasphemy. Shoot me. I just don't like Raiders of the Lost Ark as much as I like the other two. Um, Sean Connery and Harrison Ford are match made in heaven as a father-son duo. Uh, This was the film that kind of introduced me to Sean Connery, as a matter of fact. I didn't come to Bond until later, like maybe a couple years from here, uh, when Goldeneye started getting hyped up. And then I was like, wait, James, or James Bond. I was like, Indiana Jones' dad was an actor before? Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade? Sean Connery? Who's this guy? And then, you know, the rest obviously writes itself. I love the movie. It's classic. I mean, what do you want me to say? You've, you know, you've chosen wisely. You've chosen poorly. Uh, you know, the there's a lot of iconics. No ticket. It's a great movie. It's, it's definitely the funniest of the Indiana Jones movies, which is kind of a problem. I don't know that we need this much humor, but at the same time, and I was watching it as a kid, I was having a fucking ball because it's hilarious. It's kind of like a Marvel movie in a way. It's a good mix of comedy, action, and a little bit of deeper stuff here and there. Now, I'm not comparing Marvel to indie. That's not a fucking conversation I'm prepared to have. It just kind of reminds me of that type of formula. You're going to go, you're going to have a good time, and good God almighty, that is exactly what I had, a good time. Now we're going to go to June 2nd. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so happy that both of these culturally relevant films came out the same weekend in the summer of 89 because you could not pick two more different films. The first one, 
Oh, Captain, my Captain. Dead Poet Society, kind of a template for all future teacher movies that influence their students. Now, I'm sure there were some before, there's some after. Uh, I'm actually thinking, I think like Lean on Me is earlier and um, Stand and Deliver is earlier. I mean, so yeah, it's not the... It's not the number one, but in terms of its box office appeal and its mass appeal, it might be the one that let people know this is a genre that we can tap into. It's great. I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, Ethan Hawke's in it. Robin Williams, obviously. Okay. It's one of these movies that I think I watched in English class when I was a kid, and I didn't give a fuck, and then I watched it again in my privately, and I was like, oh, okay, this is a pretty good movie. It's sad. It's coming of age. You know, it's it's good. Like, I don't... I'm not prepared to give a full statement on it, but it's deeper. You know what I mean? It's deeper, and, and, it, and, it, and it can fuel your uh, desire to want to lean into who you th- who you feel that you truly are. You know, you got the kid who wants to be an actor, and his dad doesn't want him to. Doesn't he fucking kill himself? Jesus Christ, how sad. But, you know, stand up for what you believe in. Be yourself. And if this movie isn't making you believe that, there's a move. As soon as you're done, you can walk to the theater right next to you and find another movie that will tell you, be who you are, stand up for what you believe in. I don't care if times are tough. I don't care if an evil television station manager is trying to get you to illegally sign a contract to appear exclusively on his network. I don't care... If your brother's been paralyzed by a monster, I don't care if your uh, lawyer slash girlfriend has been assaulted in the parking garage. You've got to stand up for what's right, even if no holds barred, no holds barred, yeah. One of the biggest regrets of my life is not seeing this movie until it came out with No Holds Barred, the match, the movie. I don't know how I didn't get to the theater to see this. Actually, I, I probably could figure it out, because uh, I would have seen Indy, probably not opening weekend, and then I would have seen some next movies coming up here when I was on vacation. So I bet, you know, some, some a bit, we were about to take a big Johnny C family vacation around this time, and I'm sure that that was the number one thing on the docket, plus... You know, you got uh, sports commitments on the weekends and things like that. And uh, I wasn't a huge wrestling fan yet. My fandom didn't really start until Survivor Series 89. But, I mean, I had to have seen trailers. Like, I wish I had a story about seeing this fucker in the theater. It's awful, obviously. But, I mean, come on. We all follow wrestling. We all... I mean, I don't know what else I could say about No Holds Barred, except it's hilarious that it's battling for box office dominance with uh, Dead Poet Society. And you know what? In all honesty, I'm not saying No Holds Barred would have been a huge rousing success, but think about what we just talked about. Indiana Jones and and The Last Crusade. Movies used to be able to win the box office multiple weeks in a row. It's not like it is now. And so Indiana Jones is probably the hot movie on your mind when No Holds Barred comes out. We have... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven movies to talk about still, all from June. Okay, so Vince, you picked the wrong fucking release window, okay? 
Put it back in April. Put it in February. Put it in January. It may not have been ready yet, so that might be unfair. But come the fuck on. Put it in September. That's a dead spot. You could have owned September. I don't have any movies on the list from September. It's just oh so very, very sad. But at the same time, No Holds Barred was never going to find great relevance unless it's in like a it's so bad it's good sort of circles. You know, dookie notwithstanding. So, notwithstanding, I see. So I don't know what else to say about No Holds Barred. I really don't. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall that weekend that Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan hold themselves up in a hotel and wrote the script. But whatever, that time has come and gone, and so we should move on to the next item on the list. Now, folks, tell me if you're capable of this one, okay? You go to see a movie, and you tell yourself, oh, it was good. I I thought it was really good. And you kind of know in the back of your head it wasn't, but you tell yourself, yeah, it was so great because you really wanted to see it. There was so much buildup. You got to see it the big big screen. You got yourself a Kit Kat and a Sprite. Ah, man, I'll tell you, I'm quite capable of that. However, the weekend of June 9th, 1989, I was not capable of that. I went to the theater to see Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, a.k.a. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Row, row, row your boat. I could not convince myself, even as a kidster, that Star Trek V was any good. It's not, but still it's a huge franchise and it deserves being spoken of. I tell you what, this movie blows to high heaven. And I already mentioned previously, when we talked about She's All That, Catherine Hicks from Star Trek IV. Man, that was a movie that got watched a lot around the Johnny C. household. I loved it. Hey, it's a double dumbass on you. Uh, yes, we're nu- looking for nuclear vessels. Yes, the nuclear vessels, please. Where is Alameda? Can someone tell me where Alameda is? Excuse me, we're looking for nuclear vessels? Oh, I think you're looking for the naval base in Alameda. Yes, yes, Alameda, but where? where is Alameda? Everyone, remember where we parked. This is suddenly becoming a Star Trek 4 discussion. Star Trek 5 blows. I'm done with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, we come to June 16th, the very next week, for my third favorite Ghostbusters movie. Ghostbusters 2. Return of the Ghost once again. Actually, it has no subtitle, but here's the thing. Ghostbusters 2. Five long years waiting for a Ghostbusters sequel. I saw this motherfucker on vacation in Florida during a rainy day. I was bummed because I really wanted to see a different movie, but it didn't come out for two more days. But Ghostbusters 2, sorry to rain on your parade. It's my third favorite. Look, let's just be honest with one another, okay? The Ghostbusters franchise has not been kind. Uh, Do we really need a Ghostbusters franchise, I guess, at this point? Ghostbusters is a classic. Ghostbusters 2, not so much. Although, I do love the little dude who plays the guy who runs the the museum. He's like, oh, yes, Vigo's coming for you, Mr. Dr. Vakeman. Oh, you should not. Oh, Vigo, yes. Oh, Vigo. That guy's fucking awesome and tremendous, okay? I don't know. It is what it is. You cannot deny, though, that the world wasn't waiting for it because we were. That little fucking ghost with two fingers in the air, bopping out of the logo. Man, I, I was all over that shit. But why does the Ecto-1 have the Ghostbusters 2 logo all of a sudden? 
It's just little things like that I've never been exactly cool with. I don't want to shortchange Ghostbusters 2, but compared to what's next, it just doesn't even measure up. But yes, like I said, I, I saw it in Florida. We were on vacation at Disney. Whichever Disney's in Florida, world, land, I don't fucking know. I don't care. Uh, nothing against it. I just... And Ghostbusters 2 stuff was everywhere, even though it's not a Disney film. But ladies and gentlemen, it's June 23rd, 1989. There's only one thing you can do. Go to the movie theater and see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids featuring a Roger Rabbit cartoon up front. Okay, not exactly what you were expecting. What was Disney thinking? Now, don't get me wrong. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, great movie, you know, for its time. Uh, Really great practical special effects. Can you imagine Honey, I Shrunk the Kid if they made it now? It would all be kids in front of a green screen. It would be a Disney Plus special. It would be awful. But the fact that technology forced their hand to use practical effects and stages really makes all the difference in the world with this film. Dad, don't eat me! Ah! Who remembers that trailer? Who remembers the kid in the Honey Nut Cheerios? Or the Cheerios, I don't fucking know if it's Honey Nut, doesn't matter. I mean, classic film. Um, You know, it's probably not what you thought I was going to say on June 23rd, but I figured I'd start with the lesser of the two. I do love the Roger Rabbit cartoon. Tummy Trouble, I think it is? I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe that's from the Roger Rabbit movie, it doesn't matter. But there was a Roger Rabbit and Baby Cartoon, Baby Herman cartoon in front of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, even on home video. It's glorious. Good movie. Nothing bad to say about it. Uh, The sequel sucks, but what are you going to do? Now, it's June 23rd, also 1989. You cannot escape this film. Everywhere you look, every time you turn on the TV, it's there. Not in a way that's bad. In a way that makes you more excited for this than you've ever been for anything in your little fucking life. You've grown up. And yeah, you're familiar with the characters. You watched the TV show all the time. Because for some reason it was on for like a two-hour block on WGN or TBS or God knows who what and who cares. But all you know is this TV show that's kind of lame but also kind of cool because you get to see different characters every time. And then you see a commercial for this film. And you see a lot of commercials for movies. They're like, Cisco and Eber give it two thumbs up. Bobby Smith calls it a rip-roaring good time. But no, this movie has a different header. This movie has a different quote. Prepare yourself for what's being called the movie of the decade. I didn't even know what a decade was. It didn't matter. Tim Burton's Batman. Jesus fucking Christ. This movie was a phenomenon. This movie was everywhere. It was on everything. You couldn't escape it. I'm being redundant, I know. But the movie, my God, the score, the cinematography, the the visuals, the just the fucking bonkers out there crazy interpretation of Gotham City. Completely destroying what you know from the cheesy 1960s Batman TV show, which is what I was talking about in the lead up unlike anything you've ever seen before. And it absolutely lived up to the hype in the moment. This film is tremendous. You know, we take it for granted. We really, really do in this day and age. Like, Pattinson's the Batman. Uh, I shouldn't call it Pattinson's. I should call it Matt Reeves the Batman. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, it's an amazing film. It really is. It transcends the genre of comic films. 
I think it's that good. But man, look at what we were handed in 1989 when it would have been really easy to do something that was just for the lunchboxes. I mean, they put this on the lunchbox, but this fucker wasn't made for the lunchbox, which would be ah, accentuated in a few years when Batman Returns came out. Rolling Stone called this the movie of the decade. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong one fucking bit, okay? In terms of in your face, in terms of just bombastic presentation, in terms of this is a cinematic event that is culturally relevant, I don't know what surpasses it. Now, granted, I'm six at the time. You know, I grew up in the 80s, but I wasn't cognizant you know, to, to give you all 10 years of a retrospective on hype, on commercialism. Uh, but there's also art here, which is great too. But so when I'm telling you that, you have to believe it's a gut feeling. I'm sure there's quantifiable, measurable matrix metrics out there that could be used to back up this. But I don't want to present that. I just, I cannot express in real words what the feeling was. And then going into the theater... And seeing the fucking, even the opening title sequence, which you would have heard over the intro to this show. It's just, it was such a moment in time. And I am forever grateful for this fucker being produced and created and dropped into my lap. It really made quite the impression. You know, in the Aqua Cave, I... I often always make jokes and say brand synergy and talk about that kind of shit all the time. And, you know, Batman would really sort of create some brand synergy with a movie in just a few weeks that I want to talk about. I want to make sure I reference that. But the the weight and the, the, the tone of Batman would carry in this genre, you know, moving forward in the future. I mean, even just the next year, this is kind of off topic, but... Uh, CBS would commission a Flash television show that was, I mean, I don't want to say it was a carbon copy of Batman, but the setting, the the thematic tone, even the theme music was just, I don't want to say it's ripping off Batman, but it's definitely, well, ripping off Batman 89, but they're both DC, so that's fine, but it's just, you know, right away, the ripples of Batman would be felt right away, is all I'm trying to say, and it's crazy to me that one movie coming up here in just a second would sort of take a property in a similar direction. Let's just wait for that, though. So, the next week. So, Jesus Christ, this month already. So, Indiana Jones is still in theaters. Star Trek V, Ghostbusters 2, now Batman and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So, movies for two different audiences, but with absolute crossover. Do you really want to flood the market a little bit more? Sure. Now, the next two are kind of smaller films. Do the Right Thing. Ah, oh, punch me again. I've never seen Do the Right Thing. I know that's a problem. But it's definitely a film that's going to appeal to an audience all its own. You know, it's Spike Lee joint, so it's sort of a... Uh, I don't want to call it counter-programming, because, I, you know, audiences cross over all the time. Absolutely. But this is a movie. We've got a serious drama. We've got Dead Poets Society as well. You know, it's interesting that they're competing. They're putting this up against big blockbuster popcorn fair it's ballsy and i give him a lot of credit for that the next one for for some strange reason like this summer obviously i'm bugging my parents to see everything for some crazy reason i wanted to see this next film so bad probably just because i like the song it's great balls of fire the jerry lee lewis biopic with dennis quaid 
in a fucking... I don't know if he dyed his hair or if this thing's a wig. You know, the movie's kind of shit. I, I, I have seen it numerous times. Uh, I don't know. You know, the trailer's kind of iconic because to me, you know, I, I'd never seen Jerry Lee Lewis set the fucking piano on fire before. I mean, this was like, whoa, this happened, etc., etc. Uh, plus, Winona Ryder's in it. You know, I'd seen her in Beetlejuice and stuff like that, so I knew who she was. And, you know, the music of the trailer really kind of drew me into it. And I wanted to see it, but I, I didn't see this one in theaters. This was a rental. But, I, you know, it's it, it it's funny to me because I, just, I can remember just sitting watching television like shit like the wonder years and the first commercial break you see a batman trailer and then you see a great balls of fire trailer and the next set of commercials it's just it takes me back and that's why i wanted to bring it up but but also on june 30th so do the right thing great balls of fire another trip to franchise town the karate kid part three now a couple of things on karate kid three one cobra kai has made karate kid three so much better Okay, but that's kind of aside from this. I think it's safe to say Karate Kid 3, let's 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 put all cards on the table. Let's say that uh, just for argument's sake, Karate Kid is an A, Karate Kid 2 is a B. I think that it's pretty fair to say that Karate Kid 3, if we're using the same scale, would be a C. All right? Now, I don't necessarily think it's a C, more like a B, B minus, but it's just an even distribution of an example, okay? But it's not just the Karate Kid 3 doesn't pack as big of a punch as its predecessors. Look at the crowded cinema landscape here. Karate Kid 3 is often sort of lamented as, a, oh, it just wasn't quite as good as the other ones. But I think it's hard to stand out amongst this field. I mean, I really, truly believe that. I didn't see Karate Kid 3 until it came out uh, on video. And I've, you know, I've been tracking it here. I've seen most of this shit in theaters when it came out. So I did see Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in theaters as well, eventually. So yeah, I mean, Karate Kid 3 was the sacrifice. Because if I, if it's between all these movies, I can tell you I would have sacrificed Karate Kid 3 and seen the other ones. And that's exactly what I did. But still completely fascinating that it's here in the same fucking month. Just massive franchise elements in this summer. So, let's go to, basically, Independence Day weekend. Lethal Weapon 2 with Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. And for the first go-around, Joe Pesci. Um, I want to say, like, 2018, I watched all four Lethal Weapon movies. I'd only ever seen the fourth one, believe it or not, because the fourth one came out when I was a teenager in theaters, and I saw it in theaters that summer. I think it was the summer of 97, 98, maybe. 97 is when I'm feeling... It doesn't matter. 98. No, I think it was 98. I don't care. It doesn't matter. But it, and it's so funny, too, because I'm thinking about all the lethal weapons. Lethal Weapon 2 is a diplomatic immunity, right? Diplomatic immunity, as Peter Griffin would say. I don't have much to say about it, but again, R-rated franchise town. So now we've got all these franchises competing for our dollar and the mom and dad are like, you know what? I don't want to see any of this shit. I'm going to go see Lethal Weapon 2. What are we going to do with the kidsters? Well, we could call a babysitter, but all the babysitters are out for the weekend. Well, where are they? They're on a weekend with Bitey because the same weekend you get weekend at Bernie's. Wow. What a great movie. I didn't see this one in theaters. It was a rental. But at the same time, what a fucking comedy classic. Some like it hot. Oh, yeah. Some never know. Oh, 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 oh. Richard, 
I got an idea. Uh, Larry, what's your crazy idea? Well, Richard, you see these guys, they killed Bernie. And now they're going to kill us. But what if we pretend Bernie's alive? Uh, well, Larry, uh, okay, we can try it, but I don't like it. Richard, look, there's that girl from the last Starfighter. You want to fuck? Uh, Larry, you take care of Bernie. I'm going to go talk to her. I like, I mean, obviously, I, I do weekend at Bernie stuff all the time. I feel like I'm, I'm, I may be the person in the world that references weekend at Bernie's out of context in the, po- in a podcast setting more than anyone. But again, it's a comedy. It's not franchise town. It's alternative programming, if you will, for the cinema set. And I like it. Obviously, I love the movie, but man, oh man, you can see why a film like No Holds Barred is already getting kicked out of theaters. We've only got five screens. It's 1989. We don't have these huge giant cineplexes. Well, some places probably did. My place didn't. But you see what I'm saying here? Uh, If Batman's got two screens and we've got four, you're lucky to have anything else. I mean, that's how jam-packed the fucking cinema world was in the summer of 89. Nowadays... You maybe get one every two weeks, and uh, they're just—they seem to be a bit more f- afraid, to be honest with you. You know, if there was a, a Batman movie coming out and a Black Panther movie coming out in the same summer, they would be afraid of one another in a certain way. You know what I mean? So they—they they make sure to give each other one enough space. Here, they're all lined up trying to get on the same fucking train, and there's only one seat left. It's bonkers, but that's why I love it. Now. 7-14, July 14th, so we're already halfway through July now. What can we possibly put into theaters now? What do we have room for? Well, more counter-programming, a little bit of a romance fair. Carrie Fisher's back after she appeared earlier this year in The Burbs. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this one because I want to on the next one. It's When Harry Met Sally. Huge R-rated comedy adult success, though. Absolutely. Even I knew what this movie was as a kid because it got a lot of press. It got a lot of positivity. It was alternative programming. I I don't mean to keep beating that phrase into the ground, but it's like, oh, dad, take me to see Batman. Great. Your mom and I are going to go see When Harry Met Sally. I'll see you in two hours. You know, like it's, it's not, you know, it's interesting to me because now as an adult and I know adults and uh, I'm just saying, granted, I'm using my sample size, but we all like to go see that shit. We want to see Batman. We want to see Black Panther. We want to see Black Adam. We want to see, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, shit like that. Like, Franchise Town is where we're all at in the cinemas, and that's kind of sad, yes. But, you know, where are the where Harry, When Harry Met Sally's? Where are the Weekend at Bernie's? Where are the Do the Right Things? You know, where's the Dead Poet Society? It's going straight to streaming, folks, because it can't afford to compete at the cinema for your dollar. And it's so sad, in a way. Actually, it's really sad. It bums me out a lot. But when Harry Met Sally is a great example of an R-rated comedy for adults, it's not like there's something about Mary, which like kind of changed up the uh, changed up the idea of what an R-rated comedy for adults could be. This is like actual adults, like sweater wearing adults. Okay, this isn't like suck me beautiful adults. Okay, uh, we're wearing some sweaters. We've got some beards, and we're going to the cinema. What do we want to see? We want to see when Harry Met Sally. Of course, it did give us that great Kurt Angle, Christy Hemi, WrestleMania 21 video, so I appreciate that contribution. But I was talking about Batman letting us see that superheroes and comic books could be more adult, dare I say, dark fare. I hate using the word dark to describe a film. Um, But, you know, 
it's the it's the word of the day when it comes to Batman 89. That's what everybody said. You know, Cisco, it's dark. Well, yes, Ebert, I know, it's dark. You know, it's dark. It's brooding, you know. Another franchise here, same day, July 14th. Timothy Dalton is Ian Fleming's James Bond 007 in License to Kill. Oh, what an interesting film. I don't really like License to Kill that much. It's Bond without Bond in a way. This is the one where famously James Bond goes rogue. Well, okay, he's gone rogue quite a bit. But he literally is not trying to solve crimes for Her Majesty's Secret Service. He's on a mission of vengeance. A lot of people don't like this Bond because it's kind of like, eh, not as much gadgety, not as much spy stuff. It's more Timothy Dalton just fucking breaking necks and cashing checks. Well, he wasn't cashing checks. Uh, his hair's kind of weird looking, though. Maybe you should buy some Rogaine or something. No, I love Timothy Dalton. But here's the thing. It's a, dare I say, more adult depiction of Bond, but now you're going to hit me up on Twitter and say, Johnny, don't forget, License to Kill is the one with Wade Newton as the preacher selling drugs and the semi-truck that goes up on, like, two wheels. Okay. Maybe not adults, not the right word for it, but maybe willing to take risks with uh, content that's part of a franchise or part of an established uh, conglomerate, if you will. License to Kill... You know, look at the reaction to License to Kill. Bond's gone for six years, and then it's Goldeneye. Obviously Brosnan's best, one of the top five in my opinion. But it's spies, it's gadgets, it's cars, it's girls, it's a little more comic booky feeling James Bond. License to Kill takes all the fun out of James Bond. Maybe that's the point I'm trying to get across. Batman is fun. But if you really think about it, it sort of takes all the fun out of being a superhero. Sure, there's a few gags here and there. But License to Kill's doing the same thing. What's happening in 1989, or I guess I should say maybe 87, 88, because that's when these scripts are getting written and the shit's getting filmed. What is this a response to? Why is why are our heroes going this way? I'm not complaining. I just find it fascinating. So that's sort of the comparison I wanted to make with Batman and License to Kill. Uh, July, we got three left. The next week... I don't know if there's any room at the theater for this, but I am sure fucking glad that there was room on the home video shelf because I missed it in theaters, but I really wanted to see it. Speaking of this movie that I haven't announced yet, does anyone know how to get the Roku channel? Because this November, I desperately need the Roku channel so I can see Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al Yankovic. Because Weird Al Yankovic is the star of We Got It All, We Got It All, We Got It All. On UHF, he's Conan, the librarian. Gandhi 2, this time it's personal. My dad loved Weird Al, man. I listened to a lot of Weird Al tapes on these long road trips and vacations and shit. So I knew all the hits. And Weird Al in a movie where he's just basically doing gags, like, you know, he's just riffing on shit. He's doing parody spots. He's making fun of TV. He's making fun of movies. I love UHF. Are we allowed to, to like Michael Richards? All right. I'm not. I'm making no statements here. All I'm saying is Michael Richards, yes, Kramer from Seinfeld, Stanley Spadowski, a classic cinema character. That's my mop! And then he gets the mop and he's fighting the bad guys and he swings it like a lightsaber. It's like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> I love that fucking mop, man. Stanley Spadowski rules. Not to mention the villain of UHF, R.J. Fletcher. Tremendous, tremendous comedy villain. And 
We talked earlier about how my dad still says, let's go clopec the garbage on Thanksgiving Day when there's too much garbage. you got to beat the shit out of it with a stick. My parents both occasionally will be like, hey, mister, you got any change? Like the bum in UHF. He's like, oh, mister, thanks for that penny. I bought a whole bunch of shares and a really neat watch. It's a Rolex. Change. You got change. I love you, UHF. Finishing out July, July 28th, two movies for completely different audiences. For the family and for the kidsters, Tom Hanks returns again. Man, these people coming out with two movies in one here. Tom Hanks, two movies. Carrie Fisher was in two movies. Uh, Van Damme. Brilliant stuff. Turner and Hooch. I don't like it. I got no time for Turner and Hooch. It's gross. I didn't like it. Saw it on VHS and could have cared less. I've never liked it to this day. I'm sorry. If you came to this podcast because you knew it was 89 and Turner and Hooch came out and it's your favorite movie, too bad. I got nothing to say about it. Except it is programmed against Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, famously with the Batman billboard in the one shot where they're in Times Square. Look, I talked about the trailer. I talked about the movie. On the edition of Top Man that covered Friday the 13th part, or the Friday the 13th franchise where I ranked all these bad boys. I'm not a huge fan of 8. I love the trailer. I love the concept. Too bad they couldn't fucking deliver on actually putting Jason in Manhattan. But that takes us all the way up to July. We're done. And now it's time to move on to the dog days of summer, August. But you know what, kidsters? I gotta be honest with you. We're already an hour into this thing, and I've still got a lot of movies to talk about. So unfortunately, this is where we're going to put a bow on part one. Yes, you're going to hate me, but unfortunately, uh, much like a movie we'll talk about in part two, this is where we're going to leave you with To Be Continued. Otherwise, it's going to be like a maybe two-hour, two-hour-and-a-half listen, and I just don't want to do that. I've done that in the past, and, and I will be the first to admit I know it's hard to listen to at something that long. It takes up a lot of downloadable space on your device. I don't want to do that to you. But what I do want you to do is like this. I hope you like this, first of all. But I want you to subscribe to the Aquacade, okay? Because part two is going to come at you soon, uh, probably sometime next week. I want you to be on the lookout for that if you enjoyed this. I can't thank you enough for coming along on this one because, holy shit, so much fun reminiscing about this stuff, and I really hope you enjoyed it too. But, yeah, it's just going to be too long if you try to do it all at once. So, Top Man 1989 Retrospective Part 1 is in the books. Keep a lookout to the Aqua Cave so you get notified when the new content drops, including Part 2 coming soon. Don't hate me. I'm Johnny C, and a winner is you. Thank you so much for coming on this one. So much fun. I can't wait to see you all on part two.